Hello, hello. Welcome to episode 28 of Chew Cult Pop. It's one of, if not the finest music podcasts on the face of planet Earth and some other planets as well. I'm not going to tell you which ones have better podcasts. It's me, Stephen Hill, on the show this week with both the Anchorus and 100 Gex releasing some pretty big cover versions. We're going to be seeing who is attempting to pay tribute to their heroes and cover themselves in glory. Oh. Uh, and, 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 and and who were godheads, basically. <laughs> we pick three covers each and we dissect them. We'll be using broad strokes to quickly review the debut album from MS Paint. I'll be, that's annoyingly, because I used the sliding into the DMs line with Depeche Mode last do week. Do it anyway. Which is a shame. Don't highlight it. Because I wish it. to use it again to be sliding into DMA's DMs as we review the Aussie band's uh, fourth album. We're bringing back Song of the Week too as well. Sam certainly won't be beating around the bush as he picks an anthrax tune from the John-fronted era. And like the James Murphys, I'm not bitter about being nice to LCD sound system. Plus, come and have a via go-go if you think you're hard enough. (laughs) Robert Smith continues his crusade on the disintegration of secondary ticket websites. And Josh Klinghoffer... Josh clinging on to the past, more like, as a former Red Hot Chili Peppers guitarist takes a pop his ex-bandmate's recent material. Joining me as ever, that's all coming up on the show, joining me as ever, of course, is my good buddy, Mr. Sam Slight. What do you think about that as an intro, Sam? Not quite as good as last week, I've got to admit. They will get worse as the weeks <laughs> go on, but I'm going to try and keep them in regardless. Well, I mean, if you hadn't have highlighted the fact that you used the slide against the DMs line, I think that would have stood up to last week. <laughs> just last week, there was so much more stuff that you ended up, you know, adding into, but... No, very good. I I am tickled pink already. How are you, Steve? Good. I'm been uh, so my bed is like a fucking paddling pool where I've been sweating all night. Mm. Uh, I've coughed up so much that I puked up my and this is uh, apologies if you are eating at the moment, but I had some soup yesterday and then I had a smoothie and then I coughed so hard that I pulled a stomach muscle and just vomited it all back up and I looked a bit like Gigi Allen. Um, no, you know at the end of American Werewolf in yeah, London, yeah, yeah, yeah. where they get the wolf into the back of the alley and he's just like slathering and he's like, and all that. I looked a bit like that, but just with puke strewn down my face. So I am ill. If you listen to our Alison Chain special, which we'll talk about in a second, I am really fucking ill, really fucking ill. Mm. Um, but I've sort of been able to find time to do stuff as well. I did find a very interesting thing out the other day, which I think I might, I might just bring it up now. Um, I'm going to give you a guess, Sam. In fact, I'm going to give you. Th- Three guesses. Oh, God. Who played bass mm. on the song Toxic by Britney Spears? Oh, I feel like I do know this. I feel like this is somewhere in the recesses of my mind because I feel like this has come up on a recent special of sorts. Um, who played bass on it? Ooh. When did Toxic come out? Remind me. 2004. It might sound like a weird outsider shout, but given that he was mm. doing some session work at the time, it wasn't Flea, was it? Mate, you are... As far as that possible. That would be some... Yeah. Not as far as possible, oh, okay. but you are some way away. Okay. You are some way away, right? Go on, I'll do two more, do you two have more a, quick guesses. Uh, do, do, do one that you think and one which is like, what is the most ridiculous person you can imagine who played bass on Toxic? Okay, uh... Carol Kay and Les Claypool, but I'm not going to tell you which one's the silly one. <laughs> oh, right, okay. They're actually, I think neither of them are as ridiculous as who actually played bass on. on Toxic. Actually, I'm going to put my drink Thomas down. L- Thomas Lindbergh from At The Gates. What? <laughs> I didn't know right, that. I've, bloody hell. Just 
discovered that Thomas Lindbergh from At The Gates, the vocalist in At The Gates, um, and, you know, many Disfear other... and all that, Death yeah, metal yeah. thing, Disfear, yeah, and he appeared on Darkest Hour albums and Napalm Death albums, and, um, you know, he was in... Uh, what, what's the other name of the other band he was in? Well, I can't remember the fucking name of them now. I mean, I'm getting his... I'm getting his uh, discography up as we speak, so I should come across it any second now. Any um, any and it lock up, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Thomas Lindbergh has. I, I I cannot believe no one's quizzed this guy on it, right? Because his discography is fucking nuts. Like I saw a little. Somebody sent it to me. Um, uh, that was my girlfriend actually I don't know what I'm saying somebody like I didn't she get, she get annoyed by that um, slid into my girlfriend said, to say have did, you seen this before did, yes yeah she sent me a, a little TikTok thing where this person did a thing about Britney Spears and went and the bass line was done by Thomas Lindbergh a deaf, and I was like Thomas Lindbergh can't be the same and they went from out the gate and I was like no no and I've looked right Thomas Lindbergh do you know who else he's played bass on on artists he's played bass on I mean on, I didn't even know he's played bass I didn't on. even know that you played bass so this is all new to me it, it's it's unbelievable. He has played bass on Thinking It Over by Liberty X. <laughs> right. Uh, From Now On by Will Young. Right. And Evergreen, Will Young's debut single. Another You, Another Me by H and Claire from Steps. Blimey. Fucking mad, right? He's played on a bunch of Celine Dion stuff. That's the way it is. Uh, he played on Oops, I Did It Again as well. Bloody hell. Fair play, Thomas. And yeah. everyone thought Slaughter of the Soul was going to be your crowning achievement, but no, yeah. not anymore. I know, mad. Uh, he even played on. He played on uh, World of Our Own, which, if you remember the true crap pop episode we did, I'm going to call it that um, that we did on Westlife. Mm. World of Our Own is my favourite Westlife song, so now I, I, I feel like I've got why. a reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we know why now. And he's worked with people like fucking yeah, Westlife, Gareth Gates, um, Il Devo. Wow. I, I can't believe it. I hope he's getting some serious bunts for his session work because he deserves it because he is, you know, I have said before, you know, death metal is a bit of a blind spot for me, but at the gates of the one that I go, yeah, I fucking love that band. That band and the song Radical, basically. So good. I'm glad Thomas Lindbergh has done well for himself, but I had, as I say, I didn't even know he played bass guitar, let alone that he'd been a session musician on those tracks. Blimey. It's absolutely mad. It's absolutely mad oh, that that has happened. It's, an, but, it's annoying. You know, it has. Well, yeah, it, it's very good, but it's slightly annoying because I said to you on the phone before we recorded, I had a little tidbit to bring in that was relevant to our, to our interests and I hadn't revealed it yet. Um, I feel like it's going to be slightly underwhelming by comparison now. So, oh, yes. Go on. What, do you want to do it now? Yeah, I'll do it now. I'll just chuck it in because it's, it's basically right. throwaway at this point. So, uh, yesterday, watching the latest episode of The Mandalorian, as I do, and... Um, I thought it was lovely to see that there were a couple of, well, three sort of big cameo guest stars in it. So you've got, um, oh my God, I can't remember the actor's name. Lizzo and Jack oh, Black. Well, it was Lizzo was the one I was building up to, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, okay. it's about damn time that Grogu got a nurturing friend. Yeah, I don't know what that means. She was just, she, she just nice to him. He's the first person who's been like properly nice to Baby Yoda, oh, okay. as, as you would know in your pleb. Yeah. yeah. Well, there we go. <laughs> That's Lizzo, true. Lizzo was in it. Uh, a mate of mine before I'd seen it texted me and said, Grogu loves insert special guest star. And then Jack Black turned up. I was like, oh, okay. And then they sit down and Lizzo's his wife. And I'm like, oh my God, that's brilliant. And yeah, she just plays with Baby Yoda for a bit. Grogu, as he's known. They'd be a fun couple, right? Jack Black and Lizzo. I think that'd be a fun night, wouldn't it? That would be. You'd go around there, Oh, the karaoke would be off the chain. Wouldn't want to play Twister, to be honest. No, maybe not. 
But then I, think I don't would... know. I feel like if you had enough, if you had enough woo woos in you. Yeah, I just think it would be a logistical nightmare, and that feels like I'm fat shaming both of them now. But I obviously don't want to do I, that. At I all. think it just might but get just quite debauched I, with the two of them. I get, I get sweaty. I I know Jack Black gets sweaty. <laughs> Um, Lizzo, funnily enough, actually haven't seen her live and she puts a lot of effort into those shows and she she was she's got that superstar thing where she doesn't doesn't seem to break sweat. I think it's a special so you know, special, isn't it? Hey, she's special. Um My nostrils. But yeah, you'd go oh yeah, imagine the imagine the, the karaoke. You'd love to see Lizzo and Jack Black doing um meatloaf and share oh, together, yeah, wouldn't you? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And then Lizzo did that'd yeah, be great. Yeah. Nice. Baby, 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 rock and rolling rule, rock and rolling rule. That'd be great. Yeah. Can we get that? Can we get that sorted? I'm just, I'm looking over. You know when people like David, Le- David <laughs> yeah. Letterman would look to his like production crew and go, "Can we get that, we get that done, done in the in the break?" And I've just looked over. <laughs> look and it's a window. <laughs> yeah, it's just a window, and I'm like, "Oh, okay, no." Um, so no, we can't get it done. Sorry, guys, we tried. Uh, we. <laughs> didn't even really try and do we just suggested it and then realized it was not but yeah but would like to see that anyway as i mentioned go over to patreon.com forward slash true cult pop if you want to sign up for all of our exclusive content that we have over there if you sign up for any amount as you probably know by now you can sign up for the your cult pop tier where you can suggest an album or anything really we should probably at some point try and do something that isn't an album but we won't be doing it this week we've already decided we're going to be doing Option Paralysis by the Dillinger Escape Plan. We've never actually spoken in depth, at length, on one, just one podcast about, or I haven't for years, I don't think. Mm. I don't know if I ever have, actually, about solely just Dillinger. I think the only time you have done it kind of at length would have been um, when you were on uh, That's Not Metal and Review Dissociation. That would be the only time I can think of, um, certainly. Uh, off the top of my head, I mean, the only time I've spoken about Dillinger was about dissociation as well in one of the the last riot acts when I was doing my top twenty albums ever. Mm, mm. Mm, mm. So it's going to be a fun one because they're one of the great bands ever. They are, yeah. I wanted to say more then, but I coughed a bit, and then you took and I tried to hold the mic down, yeah. and I took a swig of tea to kind of to counteract the harshness of the cough with the soothing hot beverage to help me out, and hot then bovril hot bovril <laughs> anyway you can go over and listen to that that'll be coming out on saturday which is tomorrow if you're listening to this podcast the day that it comes out also if you upgrade to five pound a month the true classic pop tier has just had a big one yeah and i thought it was pretty good and funnily enough we released it on the tw- 21st anniversary of lane staley's passing we released our special on Black Gives Way to Blue by Alice in Chains, which obviously is a record which is hugely tied into the um, emotional fallout of the passing of, I think, one of the best vocalists in the history of rock. Oh, now, yeah. people might kind of go, yeah, you know, maybe it's not it's not really quite as good and it's not as good as their other stuff. And like, yeah, I would probably say that Black Gives Way to Blue, well, not even probably, I did say in the special Black Gives Way to Blue, is not the best Alton Chains album, but I think it has its own special alchemy and it has its own special thing, which makes it more than worthy of its place at the table amongst our other classic albums. So go and sign up and listen to that. I thought it was good. I was probably iller yesterday when I recorded it mm. than I am today. So um, 
quite a lot of like in it. so sorry sorry about that um but i thought we did i thought we did a good job sam i thoroughly enjoyed it i mean obviously like anyone with ears i absolutely love alice in chains and i think you're right you know it's it's not their best album but i think it's one that definitely deserves to be spoken about um I think it is spoken about fairly widely for what it represents, but you can never have too much talking about it being one of the great comeback albums and a great comeback album before comeback albums really became a thing. I think it's a, yeah, absolutely. a smashing time was had by it all, I feel. For sure, for sure, for sure. So go and sign up for that if you wish. Uh, let's get on to the songs that have been in our brains this week. I'm going to kick it off. Mm. Like I said, LCD Sound System. I've gone for North American Scum, the lead single from the New York dance rock band's classic 2007 album, The Sound of Silver, which was released on the 26th of February 2007, hitting that hallowed number 40 mark in the UK (laughs) singles chart back then, uh, which would have gotten them on top of the pops back in the day, something which I would have liked to have seen. I'd like to have seen LCD Sound System on top of the pops. That, as an idea, I think just works mm. I think mean, it just feels like something which would have been fucking awesome um I've got a lot of time for LCD sound system a lot of time in fact maybe I think from that school of New York bands around that era I think they might be the best I feel like that is the kind of um that is the placing they are generally uh, assigned I think LCD sound system are absolutely beloved um critically uh, and you know do well enough commercially and when you look at some of the other artists who have um spoken highly of them remember we spoke a little bit about um david bowie's love of james murphy's work on the black star special way back when um lcd sound system a band i feel i should spend a lot more time with i think especially over the last kind of mm, eight to twelve months at this point i've been getting more interested in dance music and actually my my kind of introduction to them was a friend of mine who is in a band said that something he was working on was influenced by some LCD sound systems. It's Kirk Hammett, It by is the way. Kirk it's Hammett, Kirk. yeah. 72 Seasons is going to blow you all away. I know. I haven't heard it, but I know that it's a 10 out of 10 album because I'm on Metal Hammer. Oh, well, comics. you know better yeah, than me. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 you definitely know better than yeah, me. Yeah. I mean, you know, having not heard it, you're in a far better position to it. rate its merits at it anyway. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't try not to look at the comments. <laughs> but, yeah. It's hard when people are sick though, isn't it? Hard to not look at them. But um, what I have heard of LCD sound systems. Me and Lars. Yeah, yeah. Big time, big time. Like that. Not even doing it, but people don't know, do they? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You can hear it. Um, (laughs) The bits of LCD sound system I've heard mostly come from the self-titled and from this album, because I know Sound of Silver is sort of their big one. So I had heard North American Scum before, and it is just such a fucking banger. I love that it's kind of got a drawling sort of scattershot, punch-drunk sardonicism to it. And it's pretty sneery all the way through, but obviously done in a kind of wry and ironic way sense i think james murphy's weird like yelping quite fractured vocals hit a little bit of the kind of bowie jaggerisms even a bit of it kind of weirdly reminds me a little bit of jk from jamiroquai at times it's got that weirdness against nancy wang's soul for backing i mean that as a compliment because i am putting him a lot Mm. more alongside bowie and jagger but there's something about it it did make me think oh it's a bit like if jamiroquai were good basically that's how i heard it um I think Tyler Pope's scratchy bass on it is fucking great. It does give a little bit of that grime of like, you know, the kind of art house rocker who actually, you know, has aspirations above their station. And when you combine it with the lyrics of, you know, New York's the greatest, uh, New York's the greatest if you get someone to pay the rent. Wahoo, North America. It's like, it's fucking brilliant. I love this song so much. It's the furthest you can live from the government. Yeah, it's yeah. so good. It's so it's, good. It's great. Like, who who says Americans can't do irony? Well, quite. I mean, most people. And right, we go. Say, but I think James Murphy's one mm. of the few exceptions. 
Yeah, I mean, this is just such a great song about essentially, like, I I listened to it and I was like, okay, so I have long suspected, and I do still with what, you know, I mean, we thought about reviewing the new Steve Aoki album, which I got sent in advance last year, and I just couldn't bring myself to review it because I, if, I interviewed Steve Aoki for Metal Hammer, mm. who's great, by the way, like, a fucking great dude and no shade on him and you know his sort of love of punk rock and etc etc but I, I thought his album was rubbish right and i think dubstep is kind of can be quite good mm. but i have sort of long suspected that americans just don't really quite get dance music certainly in the way that i like electronic and dance music so when lcd sound system came along and they weren't sort of two-footedly going into it and but but i do feel like they're quite an important bridge between sort of making European people feel less like ugh, about American electronic music, I think. Maybe not. I might be just speaking from my own experience there and my own kind of, um, you know, uh, feelings that I have on, mm. on that. I'm not, I'm not really sure. But uh, certainly I remember hearing this song and just being like, this is fucking hilarious. Mm. This is like basically a punk song, but played on like, 808s and with big fuzzy electro bass and delivered like you know at times with full-blown screaming mm. by james murphy i mean i don't know if you've seen it but um the, the uh the shut up madison yeah, square yeah, garden yeah. performance on shut up and play the hits mm -hmm. where arcade fire come out and sing the backing vocals is so good mm -hmm. it is so good and they play it at like quadruple the speed <laughs> it's like grindcore isn't it yeah, and, and also there's a version of them doing it on Jules Holland as well, which is also brilliant. Oh, okay. I've not seen that one fully enough because I know the Madison yeah. Square Garden one is, you know, a pretty legendary performance in LCD Sound System's history. So I have seen that, but no, I've not seen the Jules Holland one. Yeah, it's just like, I was going to say it's, it, goes, it doesn't go like at the drive-in. Maybe like, more like Idols, but probably not even quite that mm. intense. But it's just a very, very intense performance. And James Murphy kind of sits at his keyboard the, the whole way through, but he's literally like crouched over it, screaming <laughs> into his. You know, he's got that weird kind of like radio yeah, mic type yeah. mic. And it's fucking brilliant. And it feels like the whole stage is shaking while they're playing. And you just go like, I mean, they're essentially like, you know, uh, an electronic rock indie rock art rock alt dance band mm. and yet they are powering through this it's so good it's such a great song um i think uh it takes the gold medal on sound of silver fair nice i like that's I like what it. i reckon I see what you've done there yeah fucking brilliant song absolutely brilliant and um yeah uh, you should go and listen to lcd sound system they're re good sam i mentioned you picked anthrax what a heel turn. Oh, who would have seen it come in? Who would have seen it come in? Now, when I said that I was bringing this in, you said, oh, the second Anthrax pick then. Oh, me thinks the lady does protest too much. My counter to that would be the last one was a public enemy song that had Anthrax on it. And this is from the John Bush era, so it doesn't have the fucking clown Belladonna stomping all over I it. Men, I oh, meant, I meant. Love me, love me. Pathetic. <laughs> but yeah, it doesn't have the clown Belladonna ruining it because it's got yeah. John Bush, who's the best Anthrax singer. And unfortunately rarely appeared on any of the best anthrax material so i think he gets a real short draw the reason this is the song in particular that has been stuck in my head from anthrax is that this is actually the first anthrax song i ever heard i saw this on um either kerrang tv or scuzz in the sort of late noughties or whatever and i was like wow this is really cool i didn't realize anthrax had a bit of the kind of like 
swaggering sort of like American kind of meat-headed punk thing about them. I assumed they were just a thrash band and I just think that Fueled is absolutely brilliant. It's got a really simple riff that just goes like the clappers. I think Charlie Benante's percussion on it um, is actually really dexterous for what's quite a sort of straightforward song. I think when he hits those double snare rolls as you get into the break, it sounds fucking cool. And of course, of course, John Bush just brings it all to life with the way he's able to bring those hooks to life through his snot nose, but also really gravelly and quite classy vocals. It's kind of a weird juxtaposition, all of the things that John Bush can do in a song, even one as sort of basic as something from Stomp 442. Um, it's a real shame that all of his material has kind of fallen by the wayside in terms of um, him being ousted from Anthrax. So, I mean, like, only seems to be the, the only song that they ever give any time of day to. And it's like, you've got fucking We've Come For You All to pull from, let alone something like this, or even Crushed off... Um, volume eight which is not a good album but that song is pretty fucking top no. so yeah uh, inside out's good um is it called inside out yeah that's on uh, uh sound of white yeah, as well i think on, no that's on um volume eight. Oh yes it's sorry i think they're back to back those two songs aren't they if i remember yeah right. fucking yeah. That, that that is a that is a wicked song and again that's a really good video mm. i don't know if you've ever seen that video it's inspired by the um oh what's it the the I don't know what it's called, but it's the episode of the Twilight Zone where the guy sees the gremlin out on the wing. Oh, I uh, terror at 40,000 40, feet or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So basically, it's a guy who I can't remember who's in the video. It's a quite a famous actor in the video, but they're in the plane seat and they look out and Anthrax are playing on the wing. It's really cool. That sounds quite good, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've I remember seen seeing that, that and I was like, because mm. it took me a while to get into Anthrax. I mean, I think you know, sound of white noises. I think is. Probably the best John Bush front in no, Anthrax no, no, album. No, we've come for you all. We've come for you all is definitely. Oh fuck one, yeah. yeah! No, no, yes, you're right. Sorry, I'm thinking of the the ones that I got yeah, yeah, when yeah. I heard Volume Eight because Volume Eight, I thought, you know, I hadn't really paid that much attention to Anthrax growing up because they just sort of weren't really around yeah. as much in the sort of mid '90s because metal like that just wasn't really around at that point. So I sort of knew the name, but I was like, oh, they're like an old band, mm. you know, whatever. And then I heard that song, I saw that video, and I was like, fucking great. So I got Volume 8. I was like, yeah, this is pretty good. And then I got Stomp 442. I was like, this is actually very good. Yeah. And then I got Sound of White Noise. I was like, that's brilliant. And then, yeah, we come for you all. Fucking great. Oh, this song's wicked. I mean, big fucking riff. Like, Scott Ian might be, um, you know, uh, a man who just does kind of one thing mm. over and over again. But, like, he can write a really, really good riff. And I do think that, like, this type of stuff they started doing, which was less thrashy, uh, I think it suits John Bush. And I think Anthrax, they they, they were they were a really good match for each other at that time. That kind of night aesthetic of being a bit more chunky, a bit more aggro, a bit more groovy, a bit more, you know, just sort of, like you say, a bit more kind of um, punky. That was the sort of vibe in the 90s. And I think, you know, I think it's good. And I'm glad you brought up Charlie Bernardi because I have to be honest, I've never really listened much to Anthrax and thought, oh, isn't Charlie Bernardi an amazing, he's an amazing drummer? One of, one of metal's best drummers. I've never really thought that. And then I listened to that. Mainly, I thought I'd keep an ear out for him just because of, you know, his involvement with Pantera. He's in the now. news, isn't he? Yeah. And he's in the news. And I was like, I did think like, oh, they're just picking him because he's their mate or whatever and he can play drums. But he's fucking great on this. Mm. Like, really good. Those little cymbal tickles that he gives. And like you say, he gives that snare a fucking battering mm. on this song. Really, really good. That end of song breakdown is good too. Really, really cool. Yeah, I like this. I mean, I've got a lot of time for 90s Anthrax. Mm. Yes, me too. Probably more than most people, I would say. Um, and that's not to say I don't like 
the 80s stuff because I actually do. I just, oh, yeah. yeah. Among the living and like Persistence of Time and State of Euphoria, they are good albums. It's just I, I prefer it when John Bush is at the helm. And I think part of that comes from the fact that he did that Sonosphere 2009 set, you know, just stepped in at the last minute. I went to Sonosphere 2010, as we talked about a little bit in the Alice in Chains special, funnily enough, as my first festival. Anthrax was there and I was like, fuck, I'm going to get to see them with John Bush. And then Belladonna came out and they've just been a nostalgia act since then. And even the albums they've released since then are just not good it's like you just kicked out your best singer to get the old one back so you could make money off doing among the living every single year it's like it's really not really annoying like i don't hate anthrax yeah, it was weird but it does piss me fucking like right off it pissed me right off yeah i think un- un- inarguably like everything anthrax have released with joey belladonna since he's come back has been pretty pretty toss crap. yeah um and, you know, it wasn't long after we come for you all, which actually did pretty good business for them as well, mm. that they decided to, you know, I think they were kind of riding a bit of a crest of the wave and decided to get the old classic lineup back together and did that. But then, and that gave them a, quite a, an even bigger sort of significant boost. But that only really works for, you know, for one tour. Mm. And then you're like, right, okay, well, what? we've not really gone away. We've just got the classic lineup. Yeah. And then John Bush went up. And came back after Belladonna, and he did one album, you know, one tour with them, and then he went, and then they got that Dan Nelson guy, mm. and he never even fucking did anything, and then you thought, oh, John Bush is coming back, and then and then worship music came out, just, and it just wasn't suited to any of their strengths at all. Yeah, that's basically what's happened. Um, anyway, but good song, Fuel, oh, really banger, fucking good. Banger. Yeah. So Robert Smith's been on a fucking right old mission yes, recently. Boy. He's been a he's been on one. He is helped to cancel 7,000 tickets bought for their shows by fake accounts uh, that have been listed on secondary resale ticket sites. He has been speaking quite a lot recently about his pure disgust at Ticketmaster fees. I mean, not a day goes by if you go online on whatever your chosen social media network is where somebody won't be posting like, what's this fee for? Mm. I saw someone today posted a thing going, they've put a Chicago fee Someone in Chicago was like, they've charged me $1.50 because it's in Chicago. Um, It's absolutely ridiculous. I saw, I mean, I would assume it is Live Nation that services it because obviously it doesn't actually say on the little um, readout, but that Power Trip Festival that we were talking about uh, last week, they've announced all their prices and obviously it's astronomically ridiculous, but there's a convenience fee baked into every single sale. So like the three day admissions, what, like $600 or something like that. And then there's a $100 convenience fee on top of it. And it's like, what is that for? Is that to go to the loo? Like that seems quite expensive to go and enjoy yourself at a festival. Ridiculous. Fucking unbelievable. So basically, um, you know, he's been moaning and he has followed through by pulling these tickets. He says approximately 7,000 tickets across approximately 2,020 orders have been cancelled. These tickets acquired with fake accounts stroke listed on secondary resale sites and offering to sell, send account login details to get around Ticketmaster limitations. Any all tickets obtained this way will be cancelled and original fees paid on those tickets will not be refunded. Original fees paid on those tickets will be donated to Amnesty International and the tickets themselves will be resold to fans. It's good to see that they are going so hard on this because, you know, this this is not the first time that an artist has sort of spoken out about this. Obviously, Josh Franchetti, to, to be fair to him, has, has said a few things. Um, or Yumi at Six um, tours and, and whatnot. I don't know how far he kind of got with that. I know Ed Sheeran has spoken about it and sort of refused to 
honor via go go things it's quite funny actually i got quite an interesting story about edge i mean ramstein are another oh, one you should say, say as yeah, well yeah. ramstein like do not want their fucking stuff being sold on via go go mm-hmm. i've got quite an interesting story about ed sheeran actually when he played the teenage cancer trust concerts in 2000 and i want to say 2017 mm-hmm. i think um so obviously as i mentioned before i've worked alongside those concerts mm-hmm. for some time and one of the things that i do is actually to to get tickets for certain corporate partners mm-hmm. and stuff right and we have an agreement with the royal albert hall that we will get those tickets right that we have a kind of pre-existing agreement that we will get said tickets for the amount of people that we want to invite along and give kind of hospitality to and stuff now when that ed sheeran um show got announced i went to go in Basically, it's weird because you kind of have to go and claim through, like usual, uh, like Ticketmaster, yeah, and you have to go yeah. through that to get the things. That, but you're like, well, we've already paid for them. We've already told the people that they've got them. Mm. We're, com- you know, they've committed to go. Yeah, yeah, it's all fucking contractually signed and all this sort of just stuff. It's an irritating middleman step that you've got to put in. There. And they were just like, no, sorry, these tickets have been sold. And it's like, well, they can't have been sold. It's not even gone on sale yet. Like, it's they haven't even gone on sale to the public yet. And they were like, no, 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 it's all sold out. And I checked, and there were tickets on Viagogo. Yeah. And I was like, and they were like, you know, 300 quid. For a charity gig. And I was, yeah. or 600 quid in, in some instances as well. And I was just like, how can this be, how can this be possible? Like, I'm not, you know, it's not even like I was just a random person joining the queue on the Royal Albert Hall or the Ticketmaster website or whatever. Mm. I'd paid for those tickets and they had gone, nah, actually, they've, They've, they've been sold out and it was a fucking nightmare it was a fucking nightmare just going well okay then via go go you have to give us those tickets for the price that we pay because we fucking paid mm. for them um and it all got into a big hoo-ha but mate let me tell you even if you are in partnership and cahoots with Ticketmaster, they do not want you to buy they want you to buy from fucking via go go mm-hmm. they want you to buy from those secondary ticket websites and while the kind of the fight against them has been, you know, taken on by a few people, nowhere near enough, in my opinion, yeah. really. Um, I actually think, like what you just mentioned about Power Trip Festival, I think it will just mean what we're seeing now with these kind of exorbitant rises in ticket prices and extras. That will just be what they'll do to get around it. Those secondary ticket websites will go away. Um, well, they've, they've already tried introducing ju- that surge pricing, haven't they? Presumably as a way of saying, oh, look, we got rid of the secondary sites, but we still need the money. It's like, oh, why do we need, you know, 10 yeah. times as much? Oh, just because we do. Why not? Because you can't buy from anyone else. We as Ticketmaster and Live Nation have got a monopoly. We also own most of the academy groups in the UK, which is why most of your venues are fucking shit. It's fucking disgusting. I, I, yeah, I it's properly awful. hate Ticketmaster. I've said many times that I think O2 running the Academy Music Group in the UK is the worst thing that's happened to British live music. I think Ticketmaster and Live Nation getting to the point where they have on a global scale is the worst thing that has happened to the music industry. I think it's more damaging than streaming. I think it's absolutely disgusting. More damaging than piracy. Yeah. Awful. I think you might, you, you, you may have, a, a, a. I think at this point you're seeing stuff which is, you know, I was always like, look, you know, I, I remember when um, Aerosmith played the O2 mm. and tickets were 125 quid. And this is about 2009, 2010. It would have been 2010 because it was just after they did download in 2010. Yeah. And I remember people kicking off going 125 pounds mm. to see one band. Like that's just about the cost of a fucking download ticket and they're playing download. Like what the fuck? 125 pounds. And I remember saying to people like, well, you know, like 
did you buy the last Aerosmith album? No, you didn't. You fucking illegally downloaded it. You streamed it. Like, the costs are going to go mm. up. But the costs going from sort of 50 quid to 125 quid when they've not sold any records or whatever, I think you could look at that and go, okay, there's maybe, maybe an argument that you're just going to have to sort of suck it up and basically pay the extra money on because you ain't going to buy the album or the vinyl mm. or the you know the CD or whatever. And even if you do it, the venue, I mean, they're going to take a massive merch cut anyway, so what's the fucking point? Yeah, but then when I look at how much I paid for Madonna tickets, mm. which is an outrageous amount of money, yeah. like an absolutely outrageous amount of money. I'm not complaining because, like we said before, if people are wi- as long as people are willing to pay that money, and I'm the sucker, you know, I was willing to pay that amount of money... I'm going to see Elton John in a couple of weeks, finally, after buying the tickets in 2019. And I actually got sent them the other day and I looked at how much they were and I'd forgotten how much they fucking cost me. Mm. I was like, holy shit. I just dropped like a lot of money on those Elton John tickets. A lot of money back then. And it probably would cost more to go and see him now, mm. even though it's basically the same shows. And... um yeah, it's it's fucking it's fucking mad. It's getting to the point where it's like, okay, well, that excuse of you don't buy my album anymore, it, it doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work because an album never used to cost seven hundred quid or whatever. Do you oh, know what I mean? Tools like, for an Oculum box set. Yeah. Yes, it's it tools time. for an Oculum, but, but it, it rarely is. So yeah. yeah, it's it's bad news and it's bad times. Um, so shout out Robert fucking, Smith, basically. What a fucking legend, shout out Robert Smith. And I don't know. I don't know where we go from here, really, Sam. But I guess we'll sort of talk about it when we when we know. I'm gonna have a sip of tea now, so feel free to fill that gap of noise. I will. Don't, don't you worry. I love a bit of noise, me. But no, I mean Robert Smith doing it. I think is great. I think, like you say, there's just not nearly enough artists doing it. I mean, we need someone. You know, we need Metallica. We need The Weekend. You need your Lizzo's. You need everyone to actually kind of up sticks against it. I mean, we were talking a few weeks ago about um, you know, as I've just alluded to, the sort of um. share of merch sales going to venues and stuff like that and among others um dan Searle was saying about you know well why don't we go on strike these venues don't make money without the artists playing which i think is absolutely fair enough and it's like because who would go to i know it's not open at the moment but for example who would go to brixton academy if there wasn't a show on it's like that would just sit derelict so why the fuck should they be siphoning off the people who are bringing their business in i think there needs to be a real fucking change and it needs to start with the artists at the top and trickle down uh, not you know, not trickle down economics, but just trickle down help. I would say needs yeah. to be done. Are you list so undeath and neobliviscaris? I've been told on the internet recently that those two bands are fucking like the big, the big, big dogs. metal yeah, bands. Yeah, yeah, so uh, um, we're calling them out alongside the weekend, um, <laughs> just different genres, but they're as big as each other, definitely. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, do something about it. Uh, i tell you who's doing something about something. He's not doing anything about anything. Uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers former guitarist Josh Klinghoffer, the youngest man ever inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Sam. Well done, Josh. That's the best thing that has well ever done. happened to well you. Done. Never will you join the band? You join the band and two months later, without actually doing anything, you're inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I just wouldn't have accepted that. I'd feel like a fucking fraud. But he did. Greedy get. Um, he says that the band made cooler music. Yeah, that's true. Um, oh, when he was in the lineup, oh. I assumed he was going to say they made cooler music in 1989 <laughs> to 1995 when Before I was born, they were all yeah. on smack and dying. Um, but yeah, he joined the Chilies in 2009 after John Frusciante went. Mm. He went 
and did I'm With You, which I don't even know if I've listened to. I'm going to assume it's terrible. Oh, it's awesome. And The Getaway, which I can confirm is terrible. Uh, and then he was asked to leave so that Frusciante could come back again. Hmm. And obviously last year, Relic Chili Peppers released Unlimited Love and Return of the Dream Canteen, uh, both of which, even though I've only listened to one of them, again, are, are terrible. Um, he said in a recent interview with the Brazilian podcast Five Notas, I don't think I finished listening to the second album. And there's a big gap of, I don't know the text took so long. I was trying to cram it in. I'm leading, reading this off the uh, very slow internet. Sorry. Oh, I, see. I was trying to cram it in once before leaving the plane. I got as far as maybe the ninth song and I don't think I listened to the rest. It's a tough listening to music only because I honestly think we are doing cooler music. I never want to sound negative, but anyone doing, about anyone doing music, but I was shocked when I heard the new record. I mean, He's right in a way, isn't he? Well, he's right. They're fucking. He's right that they're shit, but they were shit when he was with them, and they were shit for about a decade prior to him joining. Anyway, because <laughs> the Red Hot Chili Peppers are one of the worst big professional bands that have ever existed ever. So, like, I I, I agree think... with him in principle, but at the same time, it, uh, to, to be fair to him, I think he's you know he's clearly been asked for his opinion on this album. I don't think he would have just come out and said this is shit. So I think he's tried to do it with as much humility as possible. But Josh Klinghoffer, be careful, mate, because it's not like you're tenure in the band is going to be remembered that fondly when Anthony Kiedis ODs on Smack or something like that. Well, I don't think Anthony Kiedis is going to OD on Smack because he's all clean. He'll and... relapse. Oh, you'd love to see it, wouldn't you? <laughs> you'd love to see Anthony again. I don't mean it, honestly. Not the infant to die. I'm not saying I want him to die. But if he gets back on the Smack, I reckon he'd have, like, get a mid, have a midlife crisis. I think the Red Chili Peppers need to have a, an actual midlife crisis and sack Anthony Kiedis well not so I mean yeah they do yeah, yeah. that would be good but like but then they do. I just split up I was going to say then they can get back to writing you know weird kind of funk rock songs but I just I don't think they have it in them to do yeah. that anyway yeah. Um, but he's he is right that the last two albums are bad but I think adding that like yeah no I thought I mean I suppose it's, you're not ever going to turn around and say oh the work I did was shit as well <laughs> Um, I feel just don't say anything yeah just yeah, just stay quiet just be like oh I've not heard them just say that that would have yeah, been yeah. better that's what um, uh, Rob Halford said to me when I asked him about Tim Ripper Owens uh, stuff. That he oh, did he? Uh, with Judas Priest. He was like, oh, I've never listened to what it. What a class and act. I was like, okay. Yeah, class act. Because yeah. you know he's got opinions, yeah. but he just doesn't want to be a twat. Leaves that to us. Exactly. Leaves, it, leaves it to the critics that Ed Sheeran hates. Yeah. yeah. And they're <laughs> absolutely correct to hate us, isn't he? I think Ed Sheeran probably is correct to hate us because we ain't that keen on him. Anyway, uh, let's quickly bust through a couple of reviews a few of you sent us over this record and said you should listen to this post american by ms paint the debut full-length album from the denver colorado electro post punk hardcore band is that even right i'm not sure to be fair i've seen them described uh, in the pitchfork review as synth punk but even then i think that still falls a little bit short of explaining quite what's going on because i mean I'll be interested to get your take on it, Steve, as someone who's much more versed in synthesized music and punk music anyway. But I put this on, uh, and the first track, Information, which I thought was really, really good. It gets off this kind of cool, swinging, rattling start, and I like the fact there's so much electronic music running through it, in what basically sounds like Turnstile covering the B-52s and Devo, which is a weird mix, but not a bad mix in my book. And I think I think the album broadly kind of sits in that mould but does so really, really well. I think it's really quite exciting myself. I mean, what 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 do you make of that comparison for a start? 
I think it's very, very hard to pinpoint exactly what this is. Right, exactly yeah, what this is. And yeah. I think that that's a decent comparison. Terms, I think they're heavier than turnstile. Mm. I think, you know, information, there's a vocal which is sort of wrapped, sort of, but it does feel more like, I think, you know, turnstile have... Turnstile is still a hardcore band mm. uh, in their approach of it, but I think musically, like not as hardcore as maybe they were before. This still feels like it's quite a kind of, there are bits of minor threat in this. There are bits of like suicide in this, but also synth things in the background. It makes it a kind of amalgam of lots of odd things. I think, I think there's a bit of that mid two thousands death from above 1979 block party, indie disco drum beat thing that jump at that that everyone was doing at that point which got a bit exhausting and it's starting to come back a bit and like at the moment it's not exhausting it's still cool um that modern hardcore stomp of bands like turnstile and maybe more kind of um i was gonna say more traditional hardcore bands or maybe just sort of heavier hardcore bands like you know we did zulu the other Mm. week and i think they have a bit of that kind of the the proper sort of heavy crunch of, of that stuff uh death grips it reminds me of a kind of more palatable death grips yeah. it's not as abrasive as death grips at any point but there is a bit of that and even a sort of a perturbator-esque nod to john carpenter worship on him mm. as well which i think is really really cool i just love this album the whole thing i think is is fucking brilliant mm. i love this I think this is, like, I've become a bit obsessed with this, like, fully obsessed. I reckon I've listened to this. When did we say we were going to do this? Monday. What are we now? Thursday. So, we've, like, been three days. Mm. I reckon I've listened to this about 15 times. Oh, fantastic. In three days. I cannot fucking turn it off. I absolutely love it. Um, It's short. It's concise. It does something which is a bit pretty unique to itself. Um, My personal highlights, if you want to drive through them really, really quickly... Are, are the kind of um, the driving acid and that kind of leaving behind mm. the whole human race that hook is amazing there's this 86 second song it's a sort of half time slam I looked at it I thought 86 seconds it's going to be really fast mm. and actually it's all really quite lumbering it's cool they've got this song called Decapitated Reality which is like manages to sort of ping pong between Minor Threat and the Dresden Dolls mm. um, I love that Burn of the Flags hook on Post American and there's this sort of dream pop slow shuffle and free from the sun. But I think the best song on the whole record is Titan of Hope, mm. which starts really quiet and then goes into this full blown, almost like Zach Della Rocha funk, like kind of renegades Radiance Machine era with this siren organ, Hammond organ thing in the background. And it flows like hip hop, but it sounds like something from Young Machetes by the Blood Brothers, which is my favorite blood brothers album and there's a bit where it all just drops out and and it's just the vocals and drums and it sounds fucking brilliant like i i love this i absolutely fucking love 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 this record it's weird it's unique it's unusual i feel like it's got a lot to say Mm. it feels really passionate it doesn't really sound like anything else i've listened to this year it's fucking great I am very, very pleased to hear that. I'm, I'm glad you like it so much. I, I think this is absolutely great. I think I like it a little bit less than you because um, you clearly are basically in love with it. I think this is pretty fucking excellent, to be fair. I think um, DD's vocals all the way through are really cool. And as you say, they've got a bit of a kind of hip-hop flow and swagger, which you're right, I think really comes to the fore on Titan of Hope, uh, the penultimate song. Um, it's interesting you say about... Uh, I think Death Grips is a good comparison. 
And I think you're right, for the most part, it doesn't get as noisy. But there are moments on the final track, Flowers from Concrete, where it gets so, so abrasive. Like the fuzz on the bass guitar almost making the speakers explode. It's sort of rattling so far. That's probably the most unhinged the entire album gets. And I think it's good for it. It's cool to have that little extra something come in right at the end. Because it is only a half an hour album across, what, 11 tracks? I mean, you know, it gets in and it gets yep. out real quick. Um, I like the use of guests they've got on it. So there's only one credited in the track listing, which is, um, well, it says Military Gun. I assume it's just Ian Shelton, the vocalist from Military Gun, although maybe the entire band did a collaborative song. Who knows? Um, but that's really cool because I think he fits in. It says on a band camp, guest vocals on Delete It by Ian Shelton. Oh, cool. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just looking at the Apple Music where it just says Military Gun. So cool. Yeah, just Ian Shelton. But I think him bringing in a slightly different vocal texture that still fits in with the kind of... There's that real, I suppose, typical late 90s, early noughties, hardcore, like, PMA thing going through it. Because a lot of this album feels really upbeat. Like, even when it's heavy, it doesn't feel like it's trying to, you know, be really morose or overly angry. I think it's it's proper, like, knees-up one without wanting to make it sound like a Chaz and Dave album. But then the other guest that's on it, who I noticed wasn't credited on Apple Music, maybe on the Bandcamp, got pierce jordan from soul glow on decapitated reality which is the db in gnashing balls to the wall hardcore one with his you know shrill shredding uh, throat shredding vocals i think it's absolutely brilliant this album it's really really dynamic it's really inventive um i think for me the only point the only point on it that i'm not as keen on is a track like hardwired where it's a little bit more choppy and stumpy it and i like i like that it does show a bit of dynamic difference where it's like yeah we can do the four on the floor kind of two-step in hardcore for me it's the least brilliant moment uh, on a really really brilliant album um because at first the kind of syncopation of the drums and vocals doesn't really bring that much but by the end it is still pretty i don't know <laughs> it makes me want a spin kick which i can't do at the moment because i'm so fucking knackered but yeah i'm glad you like it a lot steve i like it a lot you clearly like it more than me but not by loads I would yeah say. i really 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 like this album cool like to the point of even though i was sat in my bed yesterday shivering lying in bed like literally shivering sweating feeling like i was gonna puke up i still had it on in the background mm. on on like on repeat i listened to it like three times on repeat and <laughs> i told you didn't i also watched glenn gary glenn Ross. it's like <laughs> this is not comforting this is not comforting for a man with a fever no. and uh and a, you know a, a very ill state of mind and physical state mm. of being um yeah i think it's it's really really good um maybe i'm just a sadist i like being like pummeled yeah. but it's kind of funny isn't it because it's not actually proper proper it's 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 very danceable and it's yet also it does feel heavy yeah but it, even when it's heavy it's not nasty like something on like s3 which i believe is the 86 second song you're referring to there's so many yeah. like sub drops and proper like a, abrasive kind of electronics going on there and yet it never feels overwhelming in the way that that a death grips would for example yeah it's great yeah. it's great absolutely fucking great i would say post american by ms paint is out now uh it's been out for a few weeks actually we're actually a little bit late on this one so sorry about that but um sorry about that, sorry about that. uh but yeah it's out now go and listen to it right let's do another one very very quickly before we get into the old covers malarkey dmas how many dreams the fourth album from the australian Britpop revivalists yeah i know it's a weird sentence i am i'm i'm aware of that but i think it's sort of been accurate mm -hmm. um throughout their career the follow-up to their 2021 album i love you unconditionally sure i'm going to miss you so the first time i heard about this band 
and I became aware of them, was when they released a cover of Believe by Cher in 2016. Okay. Not really my thing at the time, but I was aware of them. Um, have you ever heard that? I haven't. I mean, it makes total sense. Like, having heard this album and hearing Tom O'Dell's vocals, I can see that. Well, I would say I could see that working. I can see how they would think it would work, would be what I'd say. Yeah. I mean, I was probably a little bit sniffy to them when they first came around because I wasn't really interested in indie music around that era, 2016. Mm. So I was sort of interested to see how they were getting on in the modern era. I have heard a few songs of theirs before and I was like, oh, this is proper sort of Brit poppy, like classic, you know, mm. indie music in that sphere. And I thought, oh, I, I, I actually fancy something of a Brit pop throwback album, but we don't really get that necessary. I think this is something of a change in sound for them a little bit. Um, but not entirely. Pretty vague, that, isn't it? But anyway, listen. The first two songs, the title track and Olympia, I think are both very catchy. Very, very fluffy. Very mainstream, mm-hmm. electro-indie, in the mould of a band like the Lightning Seeds, who were part of Britpop, mm-hmm. right? So I can see the sort of comparisons. Now, the Lightning Seeds were a band who I really liked back in the day. And then, when I started getting into much heavier music... I just thought they are the wettest fucking band. The wettest band in the world. Mm. Um, but then I went back to a lot of their songs and I actually love them now. I actually really like the Lightning Seeds now. I think Ian Brody writes really, really amazing songs. And this, and the first couple of songs reminded me, vibe-wise, to something like Perfect or Marvelous or Sugar-Coated Iceberg by the Lightning Seeds. Pure whimsy, very, very soft, very, very dreamy very kind of I mean I don't really like don't think aspiration was quite the word but like there's nothing kind of edgy there's no edge to this uh, whatsoever no. like it is as marshmallowy as you can possibly imagine and when I first put this record on I had quite a visceral reaction to it like why are you choosing to be so weak to be so kind of limp-wristed and wet but after a few listens I have come to accept it a bit more and judge it purely on the songs and the thing I think that they're going for, which is not necessarily something particularly Rocky-centric. No. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. I do know what you mean. I mean, obviously... This is not your bag, is it, Sam? This is not my bag at all. I mean, you said they're a kind of you know, sort of Britpop revivalist kind of band. And as I said, I don't inherently hate Britpop stuff, and I don't inhate, uh, you know, inherently hate Britpop revivalist stuff. It's just a lot of the things that I like least in music do you happen to kind of occur in the UK between 1994 and 1997. Um, So that's a shame. But I said, no, let's give it a go. Let's give it a go. Always want to expose myself to this kind of thing. And uh, you're right. I do actually think um, the title track, the opening song, I mean, I like it. I liked the sort of um, little wobbling arpeggiated synth motif that opens it up. I was a little bit worried when the acoustic guitar came in and then you get that dance beat underneath it. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, I I can deal with this. And then Tom O'Dell's vocals come in um or tommy odell i should say sorry um as they like to be credited as i understand it and i did immediately think this sounds like something that dave and krista would sit and struggle through on pop collaborate and listen i think this um is really kind of it feels like Britpop revivalism but from the worst part of Britpop to my ears and i say that as someone who's not an aficionado of that time and you know maybe i'm going a little bit harsh on it by saying that i think it's got a nice kind of summery and bouncy delivery but then there is something about not just vocally but just even the way in which it's played i think you're right aspirational um i think there is that feeling to it where it feels a little bit too arch and a bit too earnestly into its own coolness 
which is one of the things I really don't like about Britpop. I think Olympia. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think Olympia, the next song, like, I think the lead guitar riff that brings it in is actually pretty good. I think it's got a nice kind of vibrance to it. It feels lively and, you know, if it if used sparingly, as they do on the song, I think it, it can accentuate the track moving into the chorus a little bit. I don't hate it, uh, but it does still feel weirdly empty for me. Um, I would say, uh, I don't have loads to say on every, everybody saying Thursday of the weekend. I think it's okay. I think that I just find Odell's vocals drab on that one. It's from track four, Dear Future, where I properly cannot stand this album, uh, basically for the majority of the rest of it. I think it just turns into the worst kind of drabbest, most by numbers um daytime tv pop music so i think i don't need to hide is this really kind of wet edm track and it feels like it'd be the soundtrack to the end of a reality tv show and it could be like the emotional end of master chef the professionals the closing credits of love island or it could be and i i would like to see someone do this you can make a really good edit of having that song sort of building over the what a sad little life jane scene from come down with me and i don't think it would feel out of place i think that's exactly what it is uh forever starts um trying to be bittersweet symphony and then turns into more fucking wet pathetic twee bollocks i hate that um i would say get ravey might be my 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 least favorite song on it but the way the kind of little acoustic guitar strumming comes in all i could hear was pretty girl on the hood of a cadillac yeah she's broken down on freeway nine it is awful uh it's not as good or as energetic or bombastic as david brent's free love on the free love freeway it's just dreary nonsense um something we're overcoming early learning center version of orbital but sounds more like robbie williams poppiest solo stuff the only song on this that i actually like I would say it's the final track to Carl. And at the 11th hour, they finally got the note to actually make some music with some drive and some propulsion behind it. It's the best song on it, possibly because it's got the fewest vocals on it. Um, I really don't like this album at all. I don't think it's irredeemably shit, but I don't want to listen to um, most of it ever again. I mean, it's what, 14 songs? I'd say there's three songs on it I'd be happy to hear ever again. It's, like, it's actually only 12 songs. Oh, 12 songs. Okay, there we go. Bonus tracks. Yeah. Oh, no, I didn't listen uh, to bonus 12... tracks. I think I was just remembering the, the image of the track listing. But yeah, um, no, don't like this one. Sorry, mate. No. I mean, look, you know, I think there's a few things on it which is all right. Um, I quite like Jayalal. I think the way the guitar and piano works together on that is all right. The Vacancy reminds me of that song by Al City. What was that big song? I'd like to see myself believe the world turns softly. It's hard to be when I see the world I see when I'm... Do you say, I, I know the song. Um, but I don't have know I invented called. that song? Uh, it... Fireflies. Is it called Fireflies? Yes, I think that might be right. I think it might be. Yeah, you would have had that at the end of I mean, Scrubs, wouldn't you? You yeah. would, yeah. I mean, I actually like that song, but I don't like myself for liking that mm. song. So that's sort of how I feel about that. Um, and I think that you're right. The last song is actually quite good. Yeah. You know, it's actually pretty good. I think... Um, I to it where the rest of the album just doesn't. Like, Limp Wristed is absolutely the word, as you said at the beginning. It's just really fucking wet. Yeah, too much of this is just completely forgettable, I would say. Mm. Um, it basically for me I quite like them I got to the point where I was like I like the first two songs and then basically it all starts with everybody saying Thursday's the weekend which I think just fell really flat and just kept us in the same place that, uh, Dear Future you oh, sorry, was, mentioned oh, sorry I was just going to say everybody saying um, Thursday's the weekend to me that sounds like uh, the start of the ma the very rapid decline of the killers to me that's what it sounds like it sounds like the killers after sawdust basically 
yeah, I think Dear Future sounds like an Oasis ballad from 2006 that they didn't use. <laughs> um, Get Ravy is... Appalling. With, with the name, you think they're going to do something more upbeat and they just bottle it. And something we're overcoming is a little bit too, like you mentioned, Love Island music. Oh, he's got to have a Love Island music mm. uh, album, uh, song in all your albums now. So yeah, not great. Like really not great. And if they're competing with bands, like when I listened to this, I was thinking, okay, so this isn't really trying to revive Britpop now, is it? It's not. It's going for Foles, the 1975 Glass Animals. They're going up against that sort of thing. And if they're going up against those kind of bands, and I think they are, they are a long way off mm. at the moment. I mean, Foles in 1975, I think, speak for themselves. Both of those bands are festival headliners and have multiple very, very good albums. Glass Animals have only really got that that one song that was on FIFA. <laughs> but, um, every, but it's better than anything on this record. So, yeah, um, it's not great, really. Even, you know, I kind of felt myself, my heart sink a bit when it started. And then I was like, actually, you know, it doesn't need to be like quite, quite heavy or whatever, just because it's like an alternative album. But um, yeah, I'm not really that keen on it myself, although I think I'd probably like it more than you. Mm. I still wouldn't give this much more than like a four or five out of 10, probably like a four out of 10. Yeah, I'd probably go with a four, but I think I dislike it more than you realise. I think I'm I'm trying to be charitable. It's good of you. I know, I am. How many? Aren't I? You're a nice man. How many dreams by DMAs is out now? And that's the only the only reviews we're gonna do this week. We're gonna move on and talk about covers, because you know, it's not strictly a cover, but this week our new faves, Hundred Gex. Glad you're all loving Hundred Gex. Mm. Good times, isn't it? Liking something that you thought you weren't gonna like. <laughs> that's good. Released a remix of System of Down's Toxicity, and the Anchorest released a cover of Bizarre Love Triangle by New Order. Mm. It's always a Tetchy thing, I think you know the re the the um, reaction to particularly the hundred Gex, which I mean, is it a cover? Is it a remix? Like, well, you know, it doesn't matter. But the reaction to it was like, "How dare you? This is scandalous!" And it's always a tough thing to get a cover right. So we thought we'd pick three each and just see what we can learn from our choices mm. about the quality of covers. A bit like we did with the one hit wonder thing about six months ago. So Sam, I'm going to let you start your first pick is Feeling Good by Muse. It is. Uh, a, a song written by Anthony Newley and Leslie Bricuse mm. for the 1964 musical The Smell of Grease Paint, The Royal Crowd, made most famous by Nina Simone um, from her version a year later on her I Put a Spell on You album. It's been covered a lot, this song. Yeah. But Muse's cover uh, that they did in 2001, it's on their Origin of Symmetry album, actually reached number 24 on the UK singles chart, which I'm sure many of you remember happening i remember it well yes absolutely yes uh well i so sam yeah. go on so this is sort of um <coughs> of my three picks this is my kind of middle cover i would say i think basically um this is i think this is a pretty strong cover that doesn't really change too fundamentally what the kind of root of the song is which i think you know there is a place in this world for those the the other song that i was mooting that i think sits in a similar sort of similar ethos would have been Killswitch's version of Holy Diver. You know, you're not really structurally changing it. You're not really bringing loads new to the table apart from the fact that it's a different vocalist on it. But you are doing it in a kind of reverential way. And like, I know how you feel about Muse generally. I feel the same about Muse now. I think since, I mean, being charitable, since 2012, 
or since after their 2012 album, which I've still got a weird soft spot for. I think they have been fucking rubbish and they've just absolutely lost their minds and Matt Bellamy needs to put the mushrooms away. But on this, I think it's got the bombast that made them great in their early days, but in a more measured way than they would be capable of now. I think Matt Bellamy's performance is is good. And I think, you know, for all the comparisons to Tom York that he gets thrown at him and everything, which I think are spot on, I think he actually gives this some gusto in a way that still feels reverential to people like Nina Simone or like Sammy Davis Jr., who did a fairly famous cover of it as well. I think he can pull out all the stops when he needs to, but he can creep back to a tender croon when when the song sort of um, calls for it. I think the main thing that gives this kind of a musy flavour beyond um, Bellamy's vocals is Chris Walstenholm's bass. I think they give it a... It, it, it gives the song a kind of necessary but not um, overwhelming bit of oomph with that real fuzzed up bass guitar in it. I think it's cool. Um, I don't think it's one of the best covers ever, uh, but I think it is a really, really strong one. I think it is actually shows quite a measured muse compared to what they would go on to do, um, in the same way as I think that Killswitch's cover of Holy Diver is reverential without being um, without changing it up too much. I mean, before we get onto your thoughts on it, however, Steve, um, so there's a BBC poll that I will... Uh, come to a little bit more in a little bit but um this bbc poll of of the public um collated something like fifteen thousand, you know respondents uh, and they called muse's version of feeling good the ninth best cover ever but in 2010 an nme poll called it the greatest cover of all time beating out johnny cash's version of her and the beatles version of twist and shout i mean i definitely and presumably everything else nina simone's version yeah. of feeling good which is the definitive like, yeah comfortably better than this like I, I don't think it's insulting to say that the nina simone version no, is no, no, no. i don't think muse or muse fans should be insulted or even suggest that this is the definitive version no. of feeling good because it's absolutely not it's absolutely not um but it is actually quite good you know i remember it coming out and i had no time for mm. music at all i just didn't really pay much attention and i was like oh that's a decent cover it all felt a bit obvious and i was like i don't really know what the point is um but like you say, I do think the bass gives it that extra bit of like heaviness mm. and, you know, it's 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 such a good song. Like it's a fucking great song and they give it that. Um, one thing Muse can do is is bombast, right? Yes. And they bring a lot of bombast to this. Um, and uh, don't tell you about it, I went on a few dates with a girl once and she told me she wanted Feeling Good played at her funeral, right? Um, and I was like, oh, okay. And, and I went, what version? And she went, oh, I like both versions, but probably the Muse version because I think it's edgier. Mm. And I went, mm, define edgier because I don't think it's edgier no, at all. No. I think it's it's bass is sonically heavier, but I think the Nina Simone version is way more powerful mm. and way heavier. And her voice goes to places which, to be fair, Matt Bellamy, a man who can sing, but I don't think he ever gets the level of emotion that Nina Simone gets in her version. I'm sort of going off topic a little bit here. I I am aware of that, but I just well, next no, we're talking about the merit of it as a cover, aren't we? That's the point of this discussion. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's you know, I, I mean, it's it's laughable to suggest that the the Muse version is better than the Nina Simone version. Absolutely laughable. Yeah, but um, but it is still good. I do actually think this is pretty good. I think it's pretty good. I think it did it. It it, it goes for the same thing that a lot of those late nineties into the early. 2000s covers we're doing mm. which we'll talk about again in a little bit and <laughs> gets it right and gets it right like it doesn't kind of bite off more than it can chew mm. so you know i am happy to give it the thumbs up although not the thumbs right up 
greatest cover ever no. you're fucking you're fucking mad yeah yeah whoever voted for this is the best cover of all time just clearly hasn't listened to enough music really like you know i do like music and i still have a lot of love for music particularly of this time i'd say origin of symmetry absolution and to be honest i fucking love black holes and revelations as well I mean, this was them operating their absolute best. I would hate to see what they would cover these days and how much they would kind of deface it. But I think, yeah, it, it comes from the era where rock bands were doing a lot of covers, um, which, as you say, we'll talk about a lot more. And I think this is definitely on the higher end. This is, um, it's closer to um, Sweet Dreams than it is to uh, <laughs> Blue Monday, should we say. Yeah, 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 definitely. So, yeah. Um, all right, cool, there you go. Muse is feeling good, good. I think good, good start. I'd say, I'd say uh, middle of the pack for me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I have chosen "Bring It On" Bang a Gong by the Power Station, a cover of the 1971 T Rex song, the second single from the debut Power Station album from 1985, their self-titled album, uh, the super group that contained. I mean, this is a bit of me. This super yes, group. Yes, it is. Robert Palmer on vocals. Tony Thompson on drums and John and Andy Taylor of Duran Duran fame on bass and guitar respectively. So um, the, uh, the kind of origins of this are are quite interesting, this cover. So in between um, Duran Duran decided to take a year out uh, throughout 1984 after, um, Seven and the Ragged Tiger came out. They decided they were going to have a year off just doing other things. And um, uh, John Taylor um, was going out with somebody called B.B. Buell. You know B.B. Buell? I can't say I do. Have you ever heard that name before? Uh, B.B. So. Buell was was a, um, a singer and a model uh, and a, a, a kind of a, a playmate in Playboy. Quite a kind of famous right. model of the time. Only read it so, for the you articles, know, so... You know. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, you know, you don't, you don't, um, you don't have to sort of go. Oh, I bet it was good being in Duran Duran in the eighties. But basically, you're just a bloke with a fucking mullet from Birmingham <laughs> who can play a little bit of bass. And uh, within a few years, you're band forming. You're going out with a fucking Playboy magazine centerfold. Crazy times, Sam. Crazy times. Anyway, um, she had mentioned to him that she wanted to cover the T-Rex song, Get It On. Mm. So he was like, well, I've got a bit of downtime. I'll put that all together. And so he was like, oh, I'm going to get, uh, I'll get some buddies together and um, uh, and try and kind of uh, put this this song together so that she can start her music career. But then they, so he started putting it all together. He got hold of, you know, obviously uh, got hold of um, uh, Andy Taylor as well and was like, do you want to do this? He was like, yeah, go on then. Um, got hold of Tony Thompson was like you're a brilliant drummer like they'd apparently met and stuff you know from whenever and he was like do you want to do this and he was like yeah yeah go on then and then they split up so he was like oh fuck well you're not having it now if if you're (laughs) gonna dump me if you're gonna dump me you can't have the song and um it meant that the power station uh which were kind of unnamed at that point had this sort of song and they were like oh well we might as well do it and they decided to like they were enjoying playing with each other so much that they decided to write a load of other songs and get a um, a different vocalist on each track on the album. It was going to be, I think, like um, Brian Ferry and Mick Jagger were amongst the people that were going to be involved in nice. this. Uh, but but then uh, Robert Palmer came in and fucking nailed it. He just did this song and he fucking nailed it so hard that they went, let's just have him do the whole album. 
And thusly, the power station were born off the back of this cover. And because the power station's debut self-titled album is wicked, mm. by the way, we should be very grateful that that girl broke up with that bloke. <laughs> I think we definitely should. We definitely should. I think, I think we definitely should. So, um, like I say, this reached number 22 on the UK singles chart. It was a bit of a hit, you know, a bit of a hit in the US as well. I don't know how high it got in the US charts, but I think it got a bit of like radio play and stuff. But um, it's essentially the most 80s thing in the world. Mm. Like and nothing has sounded more 80s than this. It just has like Ferris Bueller, oozing from the pores of its skin mm. i mean that big solo bit in the middle with all that mad slapping electro bass and those big airy drums i'm gonna say it sam and it might prove controversial in the minds of some people this is the definitive version of this song sorry al jorgensen <laughs> and more more sorry mark bolan who you know is the guy who did it i think this is fucking incredible well we are going to I mean, marketing your calendars, listeners. I am going to have to disagree with you there, Steve. It's a red letter day. I think this is a cool, updated, extra fuzzy version of the song. I think musically, I do like what they've done with it. It's strange that you say that it was Robert Palmer coming in and nailing it that sort of made the power station remain a band. Because I actually think, for me, he's the weak link in this cover being better than the original. Um, I think I think he does a good job. Um, I don't think he's got How the same. How can you say that? I don't think he's got How the same energy and freneticism and kind of joy that Mark Boland brought to the original. I think he's good on it, but there's something about his delivery that gives me a bit of the Tom Jones about it, where he does like get it on, <gasps> grab a gong. Like he's got that kind of like stilted get it syllable. Yeah, it just hits harder. Like the other one, he's quite like look, bang a gong is a fucking great song, and the T Rex version is great. Mm. And yeah, but then actually, when you listen to the verses um, of the T-Rex original, where he's like, you're dirty, sweet, and you're not good. And it's quite kind of low energy. Mm. But when Robert Palmer comes in and goes, you're dirty, sweet, ah, yeah. <clears throat> he's almost like grunting along with the music. Yeah, I think it becomes almost a little bit lecherous. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Fair play. I mean, like, those you know. big like, vom, vom, vom. And then it comes all the sort of it's so fucking eighties. Oh, it's I mean, very very eighties. I mean, it, it's a cool update on that classic song. I just I would not say it's the definitive version for me. I mean, I maybe I'm just too wedded to that T Rex one because like I used to listen to the T Rex when I was a little kid, kind of thing. But um, for uh, me, it, it's a great yeah. The T Rex version is fucking great. I I just love this version yeah, so much. We're not we're not you know arguing about whether one's good or not um for me yeah it's just the difference of do you prefer robert palmer's vocals or mark boland's broadly i would probably say robert palmer but on this song i don't think he does it uh the justice that it deserves for my tastes well sounds like he gets a bit a out shame. of puff in the chorus that's all get it on bang a gong what's new pussy get it on yeah uh, yeah, but oh, well, <laughs> if you're comparing him to Tom, I mean, that's hardly an insult, is it's it? Comparing him to Tom Jones, I didn't say it was an insult. It's just like it's a very different thing. I don't think Tom Jones could do the sexy swagger of Mark Boland. Not now. He's got. He's he's not Search not now. Palm, um, palm. I I I think, oh mate, when I bring in Tom Jones' cover of Kiss with the Art of Noise by Prince, oh. have you heard that? <laughs> I don't want to hear that. Oh, fuck I me. I should have that, I should have brought that. Yo, you fucking do. I should have brought that in this week. You should. Think I better dance now. 
Women and girls rule my world. I said they rule my world. See, like, mate, it's already better just because it's a beefy chested man doing it. Barrel chested. Rather than, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I, I'm, Tom I'm having is better it. Than I'm having yeah, it. Fine. Oh. oh well, he said it now. And if he goes back at his week. I have said it now. All right. No, no. I'm saying it. <laughs> Tom Jones. Did he? Did did the prince ever go? Mama told me not to come. No, he didn't. So, I think we know. Um, look, they're both good. Both good in equally own their own ways. All the money. Um, but I, I, yeah, I I fucking I love this. I think Robert Palmer's great. I think that midsection with the the solo when fucking Andy Taylor just goes fucking mad, and it as it. It's got such they, that electro. There's like John Taylor slapping the bastard out of his bass. Love it, and of course, then you've got Tony Thompson's. Uh, like, musically speaking, I think it's brilliant. Yes. Even if you, ta- yes. I think if you take Robert Palmer out of it, fine. Um, but I still think it's good. Even like I, you know, I I rate Robert Palmer. I think he's good, and um, yeah, I like this. And I think you should listen to the Power Stations debut album because it's really good well I mean to be honest I would think I would probably enjoy the Power Stations album beyond this I mean I've only listened to the cover and I think the only reason I'm critical of this cover I'm not even you know being mean about it it's just that I don't think it's as good as T-Rex's version that's all so I'm going to check out the Power Station I know you'd like that some me. like it hot when something different. you like that one mate. I'm sure I would, like that. I'm sure I would. good anyway there you go uh, get, I'm actually quite annoyed that I haven't picked Tom Jones's version of <laughs> Kiss this time next year. We should do a redacted version of this podcast and bring it in. (laughs) Um, All right. Now, I think here's something that we're all going to agree on, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sam's Next Choice is Always On My Mind by Pet Shop Boys. A song from 1972 was recorded by Brenda Lee first in 1972, but released first by Gwen McRae in 1972. But it was seemingly forever defined by Elvis Presley also in 1972 when he released his version of it in uh in tribute and um for his wife priscilla presley Mm. and we thought that will be the version of always on my mind that we'll all talk about always forever Mm. that will be the thing everyone will do that that'll be the main one then willie nelson did it Mm. in 1982 and there are people who went oh it's close now isn't it this is a fucking great version it is a very good version i would say i do like the very good version a lot it is a great version. And it seemed like that might be the convo, the back and forth, mm. the kind of the few people, most people going for Elvis and some people going, ah, but what about Willie Nelson? But no, the 1987 Christmas number one mm-hmm. was this fucking banger from the Pet Shop Boys. And it is the best cover version ever. Not my words, Lynn. My words. But the but the yeah. Yeah, but the words and also the words of the BBC poll yes. that you were about to mention, Sam. Absolutely, yeah. I mean... As far as I'm concerned, this is the greatest cover version of all time. I'll get into why in a moment. But um, yeah, it was originally uh, performed as part of the ITV Love Me Tender TV special, which was a commemoration of the 10th anniversary of Elvis's death. Um, the band then uh, worked on a high energy sort of dance pop version of it that, as you say, became Christmas number one, beating out Fairy Tale of New York. Of all things, who would have thought, eh? Good year. Certainly better than, you know, fucking... <laughs> Some someone from fucking we are yeah, beating out the sausage roll people. I've forgotten their fucking name. Lad now. baby, what are they call lad baby. Yeah, like, if you want an if you want an example of how society is fucking shit right now, then I don't think anything. Uh, if you want an example of how things used to be better, 
there is an example like that is just absolutely you cannot deny if you've got one and two at Christmas, Pet Shop Boys in the pose. <laughs> and then it's versus James Arthur and a man talking about sausage rolls. I mean, yeah, for going, for fucking rubbish. Anyway, fucking sorry. Rubbish. No, it's all right. I completely agree with you. Um, and uh, seemingly history has agreed with us because uh, you're right, the BBC did name it the best cover of all time. I'll get to that in a minute because I'll just go through the top five of that. It was also called uh, in 2004 the second best cover ever by The Telegraph. Do you know what it was behind, Steve? What would you say would be sort of in in the grand scheme of things considered the greatest cover ever? What what year was it? This poll. Uh, this is 2004. I believe this is a critics poll rather than a readers poll. The 2004. It's probably Telegraph. too early for Johnny Cash's version of Hurt to be number one. Although I would imagine that would be right up there. Uh, Hurt was. Uh, uh, I don't believe it was in the article at all. Actually, I think it was a little bit too early for that. But yeah, yeah I don't believe it. He <laughs> says um, the best cover ever. Um, oh fuck, my mind's gone blank. F- Jealous guy. By Brian Ferry? No, I thought you were about to say it when okay. you said J, because it's Jimi Hendrix's version of All Along the Watchtower. Oh, which, of course it is. What a dumb fucking Which, I mean, yeah, thing fair enough. Immediately springs to mind. Yeah, it is fucking brilliant. But yeah, that BBC um, poll that I was talking about where Muse were voted the ninth best cover of all time. The top five was uh, Jeff Buckley's version of Hallelujah, Hendrix's version of oh, Watchtower, yeah. uh, Strangler's cover of Dionne Warwick's Walk On By, which, to be fair, yeah, it's good. That's high, isn't it? It is high, yeah. It's a bit high, I would say, but it's good. Number two <laughs> in this BBC one was Johnny Cash's version of her. And then, yeah, Pet Shop Boys, always on my mind. And for me, I think, so when I was talking about Muse, you know, they, they haven't taken everything away from the, uh, or, well, I mean, they've barely taken anything and changed anything about it. They've just kind of beefed up the production a little bit. I think for me, the best covers are ones that fundamentally kind of get the mood and feeling and intention behind a song and then put their own stamp on it but don't change it so much that it's unrecognisable. Like, I like Biffy Clyro's cover of Buddy Holly, but it's not really recognisable as a cover of Buddy Holly. I think it's admirable, but it's not necessarily great. I think Chris Lowe's symphony of percussion and the glittering sense on it, and of course, that horn sample that anchors the whole song is fucking incredible. And it makes it the most bombastic and uplifting version of this kind of melancholy ode to... Um, well, to a breakup, essentially. And then, of course, you've got Neil Tennant's performance on it that takes it from great greatest cover of all time to just one of the greatest songs of all time, as far as I'm concerned. I think they've put an indelible stamp on it. There is no arguing at all that this is the definitive version. I think it's an absolute banger. It's a fucking stunning song. And it's got such a universal message. I can't see anyone not liking this, unless you do think that Unearth and Noah Bliviscaris are the biggest bands of the world. <laughs> yeah um yeah it's undoubtedly unquestionably incredible this is i mean you know how do you not like this like just from that opening doom, doom, ba-doom, boom, boom, ba-doom, 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 so heavy it, it fucking is crashes fucking in. great and yeah you know um low and tenon on their absolute fucking a mm. game here like they've done a bunch of covers over the years and i think they're actually like they're about. I'm going to talk about another band a little bit, and I think like nail covers because they go. We are not going to change who we are, mm. but we are also going to not really change the song. And if you pick something which is quite far away from what you're doing, that's really difficult to do. And I think you would look at something like Always on My Mind, and you'd go, "That's quite you know the Elvis version or the Willie Nelson version, quite far away, like mm. very far away from what Pet Shop Boys have done." But yet, like you say, still totally recognisable as that song, mm. and yet totally recognisable as a Pet Shop Boys. It is a fucking masterclass in adaptation. And 
you know, they were on, I nearly said sick form. <laughs> Imagine, like, yeah, the Petra was on sick form, bro. Like Not they, but they were, they were they're like absolutely on astonishing form. Mm. This is like when they're on the, the 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 run that they're going up to at this point. They're just, you know, obviously, I think I've spoken about how great the Pet Shop Boys are a lot. But, you know, those first, those first sort of five or six years of them as a band, seven, eight, yeah, seven, eight years of them as a band, they just were like perfect. It's like so perfect. And they got everything right. They got literally everything right. And this is, you know, it still sounds incredible today absolutely incredible hasn't even really dated i think that's the other beautiful thing about it is it's, i feel like it has dated at all it really hasn't like i i sort of came back to this song for the first time in years uh probably yeah year year and a half ago and like you say it's after that little sort of percussion intro when it just smashes into life with the um the horn sample it doesn't sound like it's played on cheap keyboards in the 1980s like it sounds fucking great i mean and i as far as i know i've never heard a remixed or remastered version of it um at all i mean i may have done but the, you know i don't think there's anything about this that feels stuck in its time i think it's absolutely brilliant it, it's my favorite cover ever. it's one of my favorite songs full stop i think always on my mind i think by pet shop boys obviously but i think it's fucking brilliant yeah. mate. fucking brilliant yeah there is a uh a remix version on introspective that they released or alongside introspective mm. uh, like a year a year year later um with uh within my house as well which is nine minutes long and definitely worth listening to as cool. well but this is this is the, one. the definitive yeah. version this is the definitive version yeah um this is not the definitive version uh i have picked strawberry fields forever <laughs> by candy flip a cover of the beatles classic from the sergeant peppers album um yeah from the early 90s electronic duo from Stoke. This reached number three on the UK singles chart in March 1990. And you won't know this, Sam, because you weren't there. You weren't born. So you won't know this. And a lot of you listening may not have been born or may have been too young as well. So you won't might not know this either. And there'll be some of you that maybe just don't really remember... Stoke because in you were paying attention yeah. well not just stoke but just the uk in 1990 <laughs> and because no one ever really seems to talk about it that much it's kind of mentioned a bit but it isn't really uh like the thing that people talk about in loads um baggy mm. the ba- the uk baggy dance rock thing that happened from about 1989 to, to say like the start, to, no, no, to more like kind of the middle of 1991, right. where they're all going to the Hacienda, all these kind of guitar bands, and that kind of spread into stuff like Happy Mondays, cool, you know, Stereo MCs, Soup Dragons, Jesus Jones, Jesus Jones, not Jesus Joan, that would be like, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus Joan. Jones. I don't believe it. <laughs> Jesus Jones. <laughs> I mean, you know, one song for a lot of those bands. Here. Jesus Jones. I don't really fucking tell you one song, to be honest, but it's a good Is song. Is it Wake Up Boo? Um, <laughs> no, that's not Jesus <laughs> Jones. Idiot. Um, it's International Bright Young Thing. Do you know that song? No, I don't actually. <laughs> I genuinely don't know that one. <laughs> 
Well, that's coming next week, chaps. Oh, we'll talk George. about Jesus Jones some more. No, we probably won't. And of course, Stone Roses. Like, the yeah. Stone Roses are the one. Like, and the Happy Mondays obviously did as well. But, like, the Stone Roses were the band that bridged that gap between indie rock culture and underground acid house rave mm. thing. And, and, it, and, and what it gave birth to was for a couple of summers, whilst all that shit was going on in the underground, and while they were really good bands... We also got clogged up by, on top of the pops every couple of weeks, by fucking skinny blokes with pudding bowl haircuts and tie-dye sweaters that were too long for them, kind of waving their arms around, swaying about like goons and mumbling mm. over stuff like this. I've brought this in because I truly feel like this marked a point in music where, honestly, nothing was sacred anymore. Mm. Nothing was sacred after stuff like this. If 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 Candy Flip can take Strawberry Fields Forever and do and, and add the fucking funky drummer Clive Stubblefield yeah. sample. Yeah. We, we were talking about a couple of weeks ago that like everybody used it. But if they can take James Brown and they can take a beat a classic Beatles song and they can turn it into this desperate product of its time, which just sounds like so dated yep. and so desperate and so like what is the point of this cover what is the point oh you wanted to make a dance version of strawberry fields forever i actually was i was 10 when this came out mm. i would have just turned 10 and i had never heard strawberry fields forever because i was 10 yeah. and so i didn't know this song so i remember seeing it on top of the pops and just being like what is this song? It's rubbish. It's <laughs> fucking... So my first, like, exposure, my first opinion of Strawberry Fields Forever was that it was absolutely fucking rubbish. And I've gone away, like, I've never listened to this since because I was just like, oh, I remember all those bands. I'm trying to think of some of the other ones now. And a lot of their names are escaping me. But, like, there was just every week there'd be somebody who, like, you know, a couple of DJs or someone who used to play bass in, like, you know in spiral carpets would put a fucking dance act together and you know they'd sample the fucking shaking vac ad and <laughs> they'd do like a kind of you know funky drummer like version of stone roses version of it and, then, and you'd just be like oh god here we go again and even at 10 i was like come on get over mm. this get over it it's not happening and yeah so i haven't played this since but i always remember it being like because my mate jason we used to laugh at this song because, and he just cut to go, Strawberry Fields Forever! Because that's how the guy sings it, whoever the fucking guy singing yeah. it is. Strawberry Fields! Like, mate, you sound like, you sound deaf. <laughs> he does. You sound like a deaf person singing this fucking song. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's rubbish and pointless. And it is just like, oh, you can do, you, any old cunt can just get any piece of great music from any time. And just go, oh, I'm doing that now. Mm. And I think this is where it really, that really started. Oh, I mean, this is absolutely awful. This is terrible. Um, it's it's kind of, I think they might have heard, or maybe even had Strawberry Fields forever described to them, where it, I suppose it's actually got a sort of loose and almost kind of psychedelic airy feel to it. And that's about the only thing that they've understood about the original song. I think it's yeah. really... And, and if we go... Then it'll be a dance song. Brilliant. I was going to say, I'm really impressed that they managed to make a dance song and interpolated Funky Drummer and managed to make it less dynamic and less um, percussively impressive than the original version. 
like Ringo's performance is far, far better than what they've put together here. And, you know, I'm not a Ringo hater, as we established with Aria. I just don't know yeah. enough of his stuff. But, like, listen to this. It's like, oh, fuck, yeah. No, he is a really, really good percussionist. And the fact that you've got this Clive Stubblefield stample in there. Stample. Clive Stubblefield sample in there. And you've ruined two songs at once. I mean, it's bad. But I don't actually think it's the worst of the two Beatles covers we're going to be talking about in this segment. Because I'd say, at least with this... I mean, it is dreadful. It is absolutely dreadful. But I don't think they've fundamentally misunderstood the brilliance of the song. I think they've done a shit version of the song, but I don't think they've fundamentally got it wrong in the way that the next one has. So, I mean, if, if 1990 is the point where nothing is sacred, where we get to on the next track is the point where there is just no going back and everything is ruined and there's just no point in holding anything dear anymore. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're, um, you're right. This, for me... When I look back on it, I was like, "Ah, oh. it's kind of the first time I remember seeing it." Like, because you know, there were great covers at the time. Mm. Obviously, Beats International, "Dubby Good to Me," came out this year as well, which is like one of my fucking favorite songs ever. And this, but this is shit. Yep. It's a waste of fucking time. But you're right. <laughs> Unbelievably, it's just a cash in as opposed to just not really getting it, not knowing what the song was meant to be. Uh, Eleanor Rigby. By Godhead. <laughs> Your pick, Sam. Another Beatles song. Yep. Um, this time from 1966's Revolver album. Mm. Uh, this started happening way too much in new metal by this point already. Yep. Spineshank had obviously had their little go at doing a Beatles song, which is weirdly, unbelievably better than this. Now, Godhead, right? Marilyn Manson signed these fucking goons. Mm. I had no idea that in 2001, when this came out, and I first heard about Godhead, that this album that this comes from is actually their fourth album. Yeah. And they've now got like eight albums. The last one was a remix album that came out in 2014. 2014, Sam. What the fuck? How? Because if you ask anyone about Godhead, you'll get two reactions. You'll either get someone going, who is that? Yeah. Or you'll go, oh, that band that Marilyn Manson signed and they made that terrible industrial version of Eleanor Rigby. Yeah. I think- and yet they've got loads of... Like, who's that for? No one. Not even your own family want that, you twat. <laughs> even Powerband 5000 fans wouldn't want it. I mean, yeah, for me, this is... Um, so my, my sort of selection of covers was going from the kind of the decent in the, in the form of Muse to the utterly sublime and transformative in the shape of Pet Shop Boys to the the very, very worst of them. Like I say, a cover that fundamentally misunderstands the point of the song that it is trying to recreate. So as you say, it is um well it's the double A side uh of one of the singers from Revolver alongside Yellow Submarine. I I mean for me, Eleanor Rigby, and you know, this is not gonna be a con a controversial take it's an absolute masterclass in concise and emotive storytelling. It's a two minute and eight second track and it paints such a vivid and gorgeous and harrowing picture of the titular Eleanor Rigby and Father Mackenzie um, in the framework of this chamber pop anthem that I think is going to always be one of the most enduring pieces of recording music ever because it is so, so achingly beautifully brilliant. So why did Godhead, the industrial metal also runs, think that they could nearly double the length of it, put some fucking tawdry throbbing synthesizers on it, the dreadful, dreadful vocal performance, and replace the elegant string work with clipped, distorted guitars, a bass line that makes Van Halen's Running With The Devil sound dynamic, 
I mean, mate, it is fucking dog shit. The fact that Jason and Mike Miller, um, apparently brothers within the band, I would assume, the fact that they strain to hit the line of, ah, oh, look at all the lowly people, the main hook of the entire song, that should have been enough to tell them you should leave this on the cutting room floor. Maybe keep it as a live curio for your legion of fan. But even they would be one of those people that says, oh, the Beatles, oh, they're not as good as Static X, are they? So I, I really don't see the point of this. This is the absolute doldrums of the worst of the new metal covers, I think. This is absolutely fucking pathetic. I did find the NME's review of Godhead's 2000 Years of Human Error, and the opening paragraph reads... Here's the thing, every new goth metal band now wafting sulphurously around stadiums covers a 10 years plus old UK hit, bit older than 10 at this point. Uh, Marilyn Manson, with whom Godhead are currently on tour, started it all with Sweet Dreams Are Made Of This. Orgy ruined Blue Monday, Disturbed also on the God's Guns and Government tour, do a scary version of Tears For Fears shout. So it's a mark of Godhead's distance from the new way, not far from the new wave it seems, that their chosen corpse to kiss is Eleanor Rigby. I think that says it all. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is as beyond awful as you could possibly imagine. Mm. I mean, it is, considering it came out a full 11 years after Candy Flip's version <laughs> of, of Strawberry Fields Forever, which was a moment that, in music, that <laughs> no one ever really fucking talks about. And so it should be kind of consigned to the, oh yeah, sort of, remember mm. that sort of thing, dustbin. Whereas New Metal was a big deal. Mm. Like, it was a really, really big thing. And you know, it's it's worse than that, and it's aged worse than that. When he goes into that breathy whisper bit at the end, oh, the lonely people. I was like, mate, get fucked. It's like right Get fucked. You're right. They do not understand what this song is meant to be. They're not, they haven't even, they haven't even considered why they want to cover this. I Like, there is, well, they have. They've gone off. We do a song that people know. They just spin a wheel. Like, I mean, you know what I mean? There are some songs that you think you could make a good new metal version of that. Mm. Do Sledgehammer by Peter Gabriel. You could have done Sledgehammer by Peter Gabriel. I'm pretty sure someone could have done, um, like, oh, let's think of a few. Like, I mean, Pet Shop Boys have got a bunch that peep that would have been real. Like, It's a Sin yeah, it's would a sin, lend definitely. itself quite yeah. well to an to a new metal cut like i say lend itself quite well i know these fucking bands do but like in what world does eleanor rigby like some of them you look at and you go well it just doesn't you aren't capable of doing anything apart from going and going oh god i can feel it coming over my esophagus oh god the pain still burns inside me that's your whole fucking career you cunt you can't do anything else so why are you trying to do eleanor rigby you could probably go, you could have a big dipper. If you just lay down your tracks, you could probably do that, right? And people would go, that's quite bad. But this, <laughs> but this, this is, is fucking, fucking terrible. You Like, it doesn't even, even by the, the tiny, like, do you know what I mean? Like, sponge up going, wow, my guitar gently waves. Like, yeah. it just, it doesn't fucking work you twat don't do hallelujah by fucking leonard cohen <laughs> oh, dear. and try do you know what i mean like what are you doing like there are like i say like there would have been songs in the 80s kind of aggressive more aggressive pop songs that you could have picked that you probably could like get away i mean there are a few like to give them their credit right disturbed's cover of land of confusion i don't particularly i don't think it's better than the original 
but at least you go okay well it i can tell sense. it's that song yeah. and it makes sense as a song for them to do and they've they've just done it the same mm. but gone orc, 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 <laughs> over the top of it fine right do you know what i mean like it's, it's actually it's kind of pointless mm. or even even shout you know yeah like yeah or like fear factor doing cars yeah i get it i i understand why you do that do fucking our friends electric don't do eleanor rigby <laughs> You fucking, like, you moron. Have you heard that? Have you even heard it? Did they just have a big, it's like a fucking Wheel of Fortune with new metal bands. They all span yeah. it. They're like, oh, here we go. Oh, <laughs> Cold Chamber got shot the monkey. <laughs> oh, that'll be quite hard for you. Um, let's see what you guys get, Godhead. <laughs> oh, you've got Eleanor Rigby. Sorry about that. And they'd be like, why is that even on there? That doesn't make I've any never sense. Heard that. Whatever. Like, what are you doing? Like, put Hounds of Love on there, for fuck's sake. Not this. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want to hear, hear that, that either, either, to be no. honest. I mean, you know, obviously the dickheads were going to do it, but like, do Let's Dance. Mm. Yeah. Do do something like that. Do something you can just go, like, something do the Power the Station. Beat, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. What you like, do. you know, you, you, you listen to the Power Station, you go, oh, the thing about the Power Station, they, they just, they picked a song which was already kind of a rock song mm. and they've just gone, let's put loads of like, you know, big airy 80s drums and widdly widdly guitars and slappity bass on there and make it more like, you know, kind of just 80s, current, I suppose. Isn't it? It's just yeah. much more 80s. Do fucking We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel. Let's do anything Godhead. that Tony Thompson drummed on. We didn't start the fire. It was always part of just a world. He could do that. What about St. Elmo's fire? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure that would actually work. <laughs> no, I don't think it would. Um, they should recreate the film, shot for shot remake with <laughs> with Godhead. With uh, with God, Godhead. <laughs> Excuse me. That. Definitely do that. I think that's what the world needs. I, I, I think it would be better. Just like it would actually be better. Godhead in their full fucking white Clown corpse paint, penis, penis head, fucking makeup that they had. The twats would still be better than this fucking. Abysmal cover, mm. like it is abysmal. This it just makes no sense. Honestly, if there is a hell, you deserve to go there for this. Well, me. Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, that doesn't seem unreasonable. <laughs> no, no. I did bring it in. Yeah. For bringing it up, just br- <laughs> just invoking its name. No, no. Godhead. Yes. Godhead can eat uh, the shit of a. You know that big bit of shit in um, Jurassic yeah. Park. Mate, they should have to sit there with one spoon, one teaspoon, and eat the whole thing. That would be my punishment for Godhead. I think that's fair. Yeah. Anyway, rubbish. Uh, I've run out of even vaguely amusing things to say about that. Now I'm going to move on to my final pick. I've picked something class for something the end. Fucking brilliant for the end. Uh, two great bands, mm. obviously. Napalm Death's cover of White Cross. It's a pretty recent cover. Mm of the alt-rock legend Sonic Youth songs from their sister album of 1987 by the Brummy Grindcore Legends, taken from their recent Throws of Joy in the Jaws of Defeatism album from 2020. This was a bonus track from it. I have picked this because Napalm Death get a lot of praise from a lot of people, us included. Mm. They get a lot of praise for how uh, interesting their career has been, for how long their career has been without them ever really slowing down at any point, no matter who is in the band. The quality of their output remains fucking scarily high. Mm. Scarily high. Um, they are a band, one of the rare bands who are getting better as they as they age, Definitely. which is, again, maddening. They are unbelievably influential. Mm-hmm. 
they are still ferocious live they stand for something really 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 fucking cool they are a brilliant band but one of the few things that we haven't said about napalm death is just how good they are at covers Mm. they are fucking great at covers i love how barney and the band every time i spoke to barney which has been a few times and i go what music do you like barney he just goes all i listen to and all we listen to is swans (laughs) sonic youth and celtic frost and that is basically it right they don't really listen to very much else these days apart from that and yet their music is on the surface so wildly unlike any of those bands really Right, I mean, I suppose you could say like, oh, they're as heavy as Celtic Frost or whatever, or they're you know they're extreme when they want to be as early Swans or whatever. But you know, broadly speaking, they are not. um, (coughs) They are not that. And if you listen to the original version of White Cross, Mm. which is fucking great, by the way, it's fucking great. I am. um, I'm going to stop short saying I'm a big Sonic Youth fan because I think that might make people think that I am a really big Sonic Youth fan. My favorite album's Dirty don't give a fuck right i know that's not like the cool one to pick i think it's better than daydream nation yes i do yes i do no i do i actually do sorry i just so do and delete your tweet he does think it yeah i i do um because i like sonic youth when their songs are short mm. and they're punchy and they just fucking get right into it and you know this is one of the songs on sister that that actually does that and um so i would say when sonic youth are in that mold I fucking love them. Something like Washing Machine, it's, it's fucking, you know, I'm not saying it's bad, but it's it's hard work and I'm not sure how often I want to listen to it. But I do really love Sonic Youth. And if you listen to that original, like I say, which is great, it's not really changed that much from what Napalm Death are doing with it. No. But it sounds really different. You know, the delivery is much more extreme. But Napalm Death are a band that have managed to make the songs they cover sound Again, a bit like Pet Shop Boys, exactly like them. This sounds exactly like Napalm Death, but it hasn't lost the essence of the band that they're covering, which in this case is Sonic Youth. You could argue, you could argue that, I mean, it's not their, not his essence to really have, but like, do the Pet Shop Boys still have the same essence of the song as Elvis Presley does in their version? Not really, not really. Still fucking amazing, obviously, and it sounds like them, and it's a hard, it's a song that no one else has really done like mm. that. But Napalm Death are kind of having their cake and eating it. They sound like Sonic Youth, even though they're not really like Sonic Youth, and they sound like Napalm Death because they're Napalm Death, and they do this song pretty fucking straight. Although they do add two minutes of drone at the you know, end. This, <laughs> yeah, like this is this is the opposite to fucking Godhead, where Godhead are like, oh, do you know who could make a Beatles song better <laughs> if it was twice as long? Us. <laughs> No, you couldn't. Where they, where they death are like, oh, if we do, you know, a, a two-minute drone outro on this Sonic Youth song with like Barney sounding like all the tortured voices of hell. Yeah, we can, yeah. we can, we can make it work, and they do. It's fucking brilliant. And you know, I, I nearly picked uh, politicians from the leaders, not followers, mm. volume two, because I think that is just like unbelievably savage yeah. but i don't have the same connection to the original version as i do to this one and i think they're probably you know closer in style to that or have been in the past anyway but that is great you know it's a great cover but i think like all of their covers you know like obviously their most famous off. cover yeah, nazi punk's fuck off is their most famous cover and that doesn't really sound like the dead kennedy's original not really either no. but yet it maintains the fucking essence of it in such a brilliant way yeah i i um 
I just think them, you know, like to, to add to the amount of things that Napalm Death are good at, covers. <laughs> Being Sonic Youth is one of the things they're very good at. Yeah, they are a brilliant band for covers. Um, I would just say, um, you, uh, you're right, it is on Throws of, the jo- uh, Throws of Joy and the Jaws of Defeatism. This actually came out as um, part of the single Logic Ravage by Brute Force that came out at the top end of 2020. And I think one of the great things about this as a cover is that it also signaled where they were going to go on the next LP because one of the really cool things about Throws of Joy, like you say about Napalm Death, they are growing old so brilliantly where they're introducing a more noisy influence. So why not go for one of the, the, the flagship noise rock bands to cover, a band who, as they have professed so many times, they absolutely love. I think um, the the greatest thing about this, you're right, is that it basically sounds like Sonic Youth. It's just got Barney over the top of it. And even then, it's not Barney Greenway as you'd hear him on Enemy of the Music Business or Apex Predator. It's Barney pulling from a little bit of the more kind of like death metal influenced feel that he was doing with his vocals in the 90s. So even then, he's still thinking about what's going to best serve that song to not take everything away from it whilst retaining the Napalm Death stamp on it. I think it's really cool. And yeah, that drone bit at the end, it's like, I think in anyone else's hands would seem unnecessary, but it does actually add to the suffocating feel of what they're doing. And when you think about it as, you know, side b of this kind of mini single that they did prior to the album it's quite cool as a little teaser of like where the fuck's this going to lead to what are they going to be doing next i think it's one of the rare examples um of a cover that is so straight ahead but yeah does have its own stamp on it you're absolutely right steve and i mean i'm never going to say a bad word about napalm death and it's one of the only covers that does make it longer and makes it maybe even better i don't know i don't know yeah i i think you know that you i'm not upset by the idea of this being considered a, a better version at all mm. not at all so um i think i just love napalm death too much yeah i think that is evident yes and I, th- I mean i was going to say you said you're not going to say anything bad about napalm death i mean luckily for you you don't have Never to, gonna have to. probably won't won't ever have to no. i mean i think the the least nice thing i might say would be i don't know oh they're 90s live DVDs not as good as the one from 2002 that's about it you piece of shit I know pathetic god you're such a hater a real you're fan. such a hater never even listened mm. to the Halloween demo recording from 1985 no go back to your mum's basement what have you ever achieved <laughs> nothing so don't what uh, okay um, alright well there you go yeah White Cross by Napalm Death is fucking great thanks very much for listening everyone we'll be back next week I don't really know what's going on next week. I'm actually going to see... Uh, I don't know if I'm going to go now because I feel pretty shit, mm. as you might have been able to ascertain if you listen to this Who record. Who are you meant to go record, to see? This uh, Unearth. Oh, you don't want to do that. Not feeling like you are. I mean, I... No, I'm not sure that I do. I mean, I do want to go because I do like Unearth, as discussed previously many times. Mm. But I'm not sure I'm feeling up to it. So you'll find out next week. Hey, that's a bloody cliffhanger to leave you pricks on in it <laughs> you people this country you fucking people uh, Oi, all right anyway Metallica next week in it you can review it and i can review it without having heard it because that's what everyone else is doing oh yeah it's out next week uh, in it okay uh, seven out of ten in metal hammer apparently pathetic not even a real fan are you don't know anything about metal seven out of ten in it is it mm, okay yeah, we'll see. Closer to a five, I'd say, but whatever. Anyway, um, we'll be back next week uh, and I'll expand on that some more. See you later, everyone. Bye now. <laughs>